Welcome to Truth Jihad Radio. I'm your host, Kevin Barrett, bringing on the best guest with the most to say about the critically important issues that the mainstream media isn't going to tell you about, and unfortunately, even the mainstream academy, uh, of which I'm sort of a half-expelled member, uh, is rarely interested in, at least in terms of going all the way and exposing what's really going on in this country and what our true history is. Well, today I have a guest I've been eagerly awaiting to interview for, well, many months now. Uh, he's an author, and he actually lived through some events related to the JFK assassination, the 50th anniversary of which is coming up in just a few weeks. Uh, and before we jump into the interview, I want to plug the events that we're having here in Madison, Wisconsin on Sunday, November 17th. We will have a book release party for a brand new book entitled Dynamic Duo, A White Rose Blooms in Wisconsin. It's a book uh, with a lot of JFK assassination content. It's about me and Jim Fetzer, one of our leading assassination researchers. And this event will be held at the Frugal Muse Bookstore. Uh, at the West Side Frugal Muse Bookstore in Madison, Wisconsin at 2 p.m., on Sunday, November 17th, and then on Wednesday evening, uh, that would be November 21st, there will be a commemoration of America's last day as a free nation, 50th anniversary of our last day as a free nation, that is, and that will be happening at the Red Dragon Lounge in Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, for more information about these events, you can go to the University of Wisconsin Sifting and Winnowing Club website, which is uwsw.blogspot.com. And these events will be advertised quite prominently in the local media here in Madison, Wisconsin. All right, well, let's move on to the show today. Uh, Peter Janney is my guest. Peter Janney is the author of what may be the best written of all of the JFK assassination books out there. Uh, as I was just saying to Peter, it has genuine literary value. As a literary scholar, I can tell you that. It's called Mary's Mosaic. The CIA Conspiracy to Murder John F. Kennedy, Mary Pinchup Meyer, and Their Vision for World Peace. It's a fascinating book with all sorts of revelations, not only about the JFK assassination and the subsequent assassination of Mary Meyer, but I think it tells you more about the folks who are really ruling this country and the world than the vast majority of expose books out there, and it tells it. Brilliantly. So, without further ado, welcome Peter Janney. Thank you for this incredible book. Good to be with you, Kevin. Thank you so much for having me. You know, I, I was—I've I've been interested in this topic, uh, the murder of Mary Meyer, uh, and its relation to her affair with John F. Kennedy, during, especially during this last year of Kennedy's life, when he had the turn towards peace that James Douglas told us about in his book, JFK and the Unspeakable. Uh, I first heard about this back in, oh, it was quite a while ago, I think maybe the 80s, uh, possibly even late 70s. Timothy Leary had spoken about it, uh, and it appeared that Mary Meyer was part of a conspiracy of eight Washington women to turn on powerful men to LSD and world peace. And <laughs> that her jealous husband, Cord, her ex-husband, Cord Meyer, a CIA Operation Mockingbird chieftain, 
had uh, perhaps been involved in the CIA's taking revenge on her, uh, as well as, of course, covering up the murder of JFK. It's an amazing and bizarre story. Truth is stranger than fiction. Uh, when I first heard this stuff, you know, I, I was somewhat skeptical, but interested. And, uh, well, your book has put the final word out there. As far as I'm concerned, this is for real. Uh, and you, you've been living with this stuff for a long time, so maybe we could just go back and you could tell us a little bit uh, about you, how, well, how, how you... I uh, got involved with this amazing story. Well, um, I grew up in Washington, D.C. in the 1950s and 1960s, and that was because my father uh, was recruited by Alan Dulles into the CIA uh, in 1948, and he was really right at the top echelon, right up with Cord Meyer, uh, James Jesus Angleton, Richard Helms. Uh, I mean, they were all uh, socially uh acceptable and together with one another. So I knew all of these people and I knew their families and I, you know, my parents would socialize with them and I knew their kids, but with particularly with the family of Cord and Mary Meyer, I was best friends with Michael Meyer, their middle child, who was unfortunately killed uh, when we were nine years old. He was hit by a car right around Christmas time. But uh, so I, I knew the Meyer family intimately, and of course, as people will see when they read my book, I had a very uh, unique and special uh, relationship with Mary Meyer. I mean, she was the mother of my best friend, but she was also uh, an extraordinary human being, an extraordinary woman, arguably one of the most beautiful women in an entire generation, and she was just so uh, kind to me in particular, particularly around Michael's death. I mean, it was a, it was, that was a real major life event for me as, as a young boy. It really affected me profoundly. And uh, Mary Meyer was really, I think, the only adult who really understood my grief uh, and, in a, and in a sense tried to include me uh, in that way of helping me through it, much more so than either of my parents could. So I had this relationship uh, with her and the family. And, of course, I didn't really know what was going on mental uh, in, in taking care of me in a certain way that my parents, for whatever reason, were not able to. I mean, both my parents, in my opinion, as a clinical psychologist, were alcoholic, and I, this had something to do with it. Mary was not a drinker. Uh, I mean, not that she never drank once in a while, but she was not someone who used alcohol to self-medicate herself, unlike her husband, Cordmeyer. So I developed this strong relationship with her, and then, of course, when she was murdered in 1964, I was away at boarding school. Uh, and I did not find out about it uh, until that Thanksgiving of 64, and the murder had happened in October. So I was shocked uh, to find this out. It really affected me. And uh, it wasn't until 12 years later in 1976 where it came out in the National Enquirer that she had had this affair with JFK and uh, there was this insinuation of, of recreational drugs, 
where, you know, it really started to open my eyes. And that sort of began my journey in terms of getting to the bottom of this, of this story. It, it really has taken me 35 years or so to put this all together. Well, your personal relationship with uh, Mary Meyer, uh, which was apparently a substantial relationship, and your relationship also with Cord Meyer and some of these other people, you went fishing with James Jesus Angleton, a legendary CIA uh, skullduggery <laughs> specialist who supposedly descended into extreme paranoia. Anyway, that relationship that you've had with these people, I think, really brings out uh, depth in this book that very few other books that touch on these topics have. Uh, in, a, in a way, these characters are both more, they're very, very deeply real, uh, but they're also larger than life. I mean, Mary is larger than life in a good way, and Cord uh, is, and, and James Jesus Angleton, uh, are larger than life in a bad way. Well, that was, you know, that was part of the effort in my book. You know, I thought, uh, you see, having grown up in this milieu and having known these people, having been around them, I wanted to bring that dimension into the book. I mean, because, you know, a lot of people write about Jim Angleton uh, and a number of others have written about Cord, but they don't really know them as people. Uh, and I, not that I had, you know, tremendous amounts of access to them. And, and, of course, I was a child. They were an adult. But I was still observant enough as a child to, you know, watch them, uh, to understand their impact on me and other people. I knew Jim Angleton's children, you know. I, I knew one of his daughters, Truffy Angleton. Um, so I kind of had a, you know, a bird's eye view, so to speak, to other dimensions of these people that, that most people didn't get. And that's one of the avenues in the book that I think is so important for people because they can sit down and read this book and get engrossed in it on any number of levels. You know, I mean, it's a, it's a detective story. It's a mystery thriller. Uh, it's, it's all kinds of things. And I, and I think that has to do with some of the popularity of the book and why it, it's done relatively well in, in terms of sales. Yes, I'm sure, I'm sure it is. It's a book I would recommend to anyone, including people who usually sort of turn up their noses at so-called conspiracy stuff. <laughs> but, and, and this deep characterization of some of these principles is, is I think, the key, to me, for me at least, is what makes this book really stand out. And it addresses a mystery that still troubles me and I still haven't really managed to wrap my mind around, which is, you know, how can these people who commit these unspeakable acts of evil, as James Douglas put it in his title, a JFK <coughs> Unspeakable, how what leads them to do this? And, and Cord Meyer in particular is the the centerpiece of a real mystery for me. You know, I didn't realize that he had been such a devoted peacenik before he was corrupted by uh, by the CIA and alcohol and, and became, according to the confession of St. John Hunt, who I will be interviewing perhaps later today, uh, uh, the uh, leader of this uh, chain of command that, that killed President Kennedy, uh, how could Cord Meyer go from being such a dedicated peace activist to participating in murdering the President of the United States because the President was working for world peace? Well, that, that I mean, I agree with you. It, it's, it's a fascinating question. Uh, and Cord's downfall uh, will, I think, always remain a, a bit mysterious. You know, certainly alcohol uh, had a had a 
a role in this, I, you know, because Cord was alcoholic. There's just no way around that. And understanding alcoholism and, and what it does to one's character and one's being, you know, is the subject of many, many clinical books, and, and it's devastating. It's, it's more devastating uh, than most people understand. But with Cord, you know, he was such a star, uh, in the late 40s, um, you know, he was like a rock, he really was like a rock star. Uh, and he, I mean, he was just everywhere and speaking very eloquent for world peace. He was head of the United World Federalists, which was this organization that wanted to bring, you know, a, a, a bureaucracy in, into being that would, in a sense, control, that would do what the United Nations should be doing, but doesn't seem to always work very well. So Cord, you know, really did his best uh, to bring that into existence. But of course, as Russia and the specter of communism became to pervade American culture in the very late 40s, early 50s, uh, it, it just wasn't going to work. And I, and I think it really depressed Cord. Uh, but then he met Alan Dulles. I, I believe it was his father. Uh, who set up an interview with Alan Dulles, and Dulles was just a master at seducing people like Cord. And this is exactly the kind of person that Alan Dulles wanted around in the CIA. You know, very bright, Ivy League, aristocratic, will continue to rule the world, but will do it in a way where, you know, everyone will come out a winner. I mean, he seduced a lot of people, including my father. Uh, and these people just really began to feel that they were above and beyond the law and that they were making the world safe for democracy and, of course, uh, putting into place the maintenance of the American empire. And they were damn good at it. Well, they, they did uh, build an empire pretty efficiently, but their ruthlessness of their efficiency, I think, uh, certainly left some major scars on democracy, to oh, say the boy, least. Oh, boy, did it. Absolutely, it did. You know, and, and we haven't recovered from it, in my opinion. Yeah, I, absolutely. You know, I, I got involved in this sort of thing in a, in a serious way uh, due to 9-11, which is kind of the JFK assassination for uh, the next generation, I think. Um, and it, it, it seems that these people pulling off these big lie types of crimes, uh, which repeatedly seem to be all about uh, preventing peace from breaking out, really. Uh, you know, if you look at these murders of the Kennedy brothers, of Martin Luther King, of Senator Paul Wellstone, and of course the false flag operations like 9-11 and you know, earlier deceptions like the Gulf of, Gulf of Tonkin, the Kuwait baby incubator hoax, over and over and over we see that there seems to be a war party that is willing to uh, commit murder and put out big lies in order to keep its war agenda going. And, and I, I guess you're leaning towards the opinion that the people behind this think that what they're doing is best for the country. They can keep the people as sort of well-meaning innocents, and they can manage their empire in the way it needs to be managed without interference from these uh, idealistic peacenik types. I mean, is, is that their mentality? Well, I think that's part, but, you, you know, this is really, uh, I mean, people talk about the CIA as capitalism's invisible army, you know, and, and this is really, I, I think it does come down to who, may, who can maintain the biggest economic stronghold on the rest of the world. 
and and you know there there is in my opinion a small group of individuals whether you want to call the Bilberg group or the Illuminati or or whatever but the people who are really in position to maintain economic control on this planet they have an agenda uh and i think until very recently you know and and possibly even as we speak you know their agenda is economic control and they are not going to give that up they want to control the resources they want to control governments but they what they really want to control is people's heads uh because they don't want you to know what is truly really going on and i think that's starting to crack largely because we have the internet and that has just been possibly the most important tool in terms of leveling the playing ground for information uh and history that we have had certainly in my generation i agree completely and and that's one reason that i've moved from <laughs> academia into talk radio <laughs> uh to be part of this new independent media uh of what seems to me to be almost a new kind of gutenberg revolution that will change consciousness almost as much as the uh printing press did when it brought in mass literacy uh, well peter uh, the powers that be that want to control people's heads they don't want people to understand what's really going on uh it's it seems though that they they're willing to resort to more murder than they really need to sometimes uh you know that it appears that the there were two authors that were working on books on the same topic of uh Mary Myers murder and its relationship to the murder of JFK in the 90s and both of them may have been uh injured or killed by the forces of cover up and so all that did was uh keep the story hot for your book which is probably even better than those earlier books would have been uh i mean they didn't really need to do that and and it seems to me there's a surplus repression here uh in with this violence uh directed at people who are trying to get out the truth well i i i agree with you i i i mean it's i think the author jim mars has been very uh eloquent and correct in in terms of putting together the list of people who have died mysteriously or who have been out and out killed uh in not so mysterious circumstances subsequent to the the Kennedy assassination right, and, right. and there, then Belzer and Wayne's hit list is is another that, that's right yeah. that exactly and and they talk about Mary Meyer in that book quite a bit uh and, and of course Mary was was one of the 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 first i i mean she was murdered literally uh just under 3 weeks after the Warren commission was released and i believe the timing of her murder was no accident because when the Warren commission came out she was very very upset she was just infuriated uh that the the country was going to in a sense be uh blinded by this outright lie this outright piece of propaganda that Lee Harvey Oswald had had done it and and that would be the end of it and she had spent most of the year of 1964 doing her own research and she was ready to go public she was ready to go public about her relationship with JFK and what she had discovered about what had taken place in Dallas and of course that was going to take her right to the doorstep of the CIA and when Angleton and and her ex-husband Cord Meyer found out about this 
according to Robert Crowley, another CIA person who was at the meeting where they made the decision to take her out, Cord didn't have any ambivalence about it at all. And that, that's pretty shocking. Here's this guy who seemed like such a uh, idealistic character working for World Peace all those years before he got corrupted by uh, Dulles, the CIA, and alcohol. And here he's willing to go along with the guys in the gray suits in the CIA when they say his, his ex-wife is beautiful, both physically and spiritually, person, uh, needs to be taken out to cover up the truth of the JFK assassination. And that's just horrific. It, it, it is. But, you know, by that time, I think Cord was really lost. Uh, he had been, you know, taken over, so to speak. And, uh, you know, I think clearly Cord was involved in the planning and logistics of the JFK assassination, even though, you know, there's been very little written about Cord's actual role. Uh, I'm, I'm suspicious of, you know, what E. Howard Hunt says about this, because I believe Howard Hunt would say anything as he as he neared his deathbed. Uh, and he made, a, you know, a very salacious story about Cord being jealous, you know, because Mary had you know, gone to JFK. I mean, I'm sure that dimension is real uh, in, in it, uh, on its own level. You know, yeah, don't, but, I mean, don't, don't you think he he's not going to out and out lie to his son? This was a kind of a gift of truth to his son who had been pestering him for <coughs> truth for, for a, a decades. So I, I, I think that, you know, that as, much, as far as Hunt went, it was probably largely true. Well, I, you know, it, it could have been. It, it, it's hard to know with Howard Hunt. I, I just always, you know, have been very suspicious of him. But, you know, certainly, I, I mean, he was a real rascal. Uh, and the fact that Mark Lane took him apart in court and exposed him uh, for the liar that he was at, back in 1985, where Hunt was trying to sue Liberty Lobby, to get $600,000 saying that he had not been in Dallas that day when, in fact, not only had he been in Dallas, he was the paymaster uh, for one group of the assassins. I, I mean, it's just, it, it, it's incredible, mm. frankly. Well, well yeah, but, but see, of course he's, Hunt is going to lie to the court, uh, and fortunately he got exposed. But again, uh, you know, I've had St. John Hunt on my show before, and I'm hoping to have him on again very soon. And in the, in the context here, remember, St. John Hunt has been, he's been bugging his dad for the truth about the JFK assassination forever. He's been put off, put off. Remember, his mom w went down in a plane uh, with a right. suitcase full of cash. This was related to her activities with Hunt during the Watergate scandal. Uh, and there had been a lot of emotional estrangement. And as somebody, you know, you, your own father worked for the CIA, and he was one of the bad guys, too. And so I'm sure, you know, you could relate to the situation that, that St. John Hunt had this estranged relationship with his father, and then his father sort of tried to mend the relationship towards the end of his life. And then this uh, little kernel of truth, which I'm sure was far less than Hunt actually knew, uh, was given to his son kind of as a gift at the end of his life. And I find it absolutely credible as far as it goes. Well, I think, you know, I'm not disagreeing with you. I think there probably is some truth in it. It's just... It, it, it's just one of those things that still leaves me with a few questions. I mean, there's no question in my mind that Cord Meyer had sold his soul to the devil, uh, just none at all. And, and I think it, I mean, it's so utterly tragic because his other two sons have really just been, you know, very uh, taken apart by what happened. His oldest son, Quentin, 
has you know largely made a career out of being a mental health patient and and has been you know pretty much dysfunctional his entire adult life his younger brother mark uh you know turned turned into an evangelical and li- lives down in Richmond, Virginia, with his wife, you know, proselytizing for a certain church. I mean, this guy went to Yale, was one of, you know, Yale University's first Chinese undergraduate majors. I mean, he's a brilliant kid. Uh, but I think, you know, the family was just so traumatized, first losing their brother when he was nine years old, but then losing their mother in the way that she was murdered. And, of course, all the suspicion. Uh, I, I mean, this is Washington, D.C.'s most famous unsolved murder. And, and the interesting thing, Kevin, is there hasn't been one media outlet in Washington, radio, television, literary, anything, that will touch my book, that will review it, that will talk about it. I, I mean, it's probably the most comprehensive account ever to be written or ever will be written about what happened to Mary Meyer uh, and it involves a lot of former prominent people in Washington, but there's a blackout on the book in in, in the entire Washington area. And how, how does that work? I mean, you would think that you know DC is such a gossipy place. Uh, how can it be exempt from this sort of aspect of human nature that we even saw in the old Soviet Union, when even where everybody kind of believed in communism, there was still the rumors, there was still the you know the Samostat building up. Uh, how could anyone in the D.C. inner circle not be interested in your book? Well, I think there are people, a lot of people who are interested, but you won't hear or you will not see any of the ma- mainstream media outlets, you know, taking it on. And, and that's what I find. I, I mean, this is, you know, the influence of Ben Bradley that, that, that is going on down there. It's the influence of the national security apparatus. Uh, I mean, the, the first thing when my book came out that the CIA wanted to do is they got me on CNN and then just tried to lambast me. You know, I I, I printed that and the interview was posted on, on the book's website if you ever want to watch it. But, you know, I, I do think uh, the book is thorough enough where it, it should be examined thoroughly. I, I mean, look, no one gets it completely right. But I maintain that I got it more than 93% right. I'm sure there are details that I've missed uh, here and there. But basically, the story is there. And uh, it's it's supported by just nearly a 1,000 footnotes in the book. Uh, And, you know, I I just, for the life of me, can't get over the fact that in, in and around Washington, no one will take it on in terms of, you know, being on television programs down there, having it reviewed in the Washington Post or the Washington Observer or anything like that. No one in Congress will take it on. I, I just find that incredible. Well, I, I do, too. That was one of the most shocking things uh, that I went through just when I discovered the 9-11 cover-up was the fact that I had been living for two years in this country after this event had taken place, and I had never heard uh, of Building 7 coming down, uh, this you know the CIA's uh, number two headquarters on Earth after its Langley, Virginia first headquarters in that you know number one national security building in New York, boom, six and a half seconds straight into its own footprint. 
uh, for no reason whatsoever after a countdown to demolition went out over police radio. And then the, the mafiosi landlord, who's a close friend of Netanyahu, confesses to having demolished it. And none of this made it into the national media. And then the more I looked at 9-11, the more I realized that there wasn't a single shred of evidence for any aspect of this official story. And, in fact, it was completely contradicted. And the media had completely missed all of this. You know, they, they, yes. they missed hundreds of yes. the biggest stories that would have ever existed in the American media in all of history. And hundreds right. of these stories they just completely overlooked. And that boggled my mind because I still thought that there was a certain taste for scandal. They wanted to sell newspapers. They wanted to sell TV ads. How could they completely ignore this stuff? Uh, and maybe Cord Meyer is an interesting person to look at in terms of the history of how our media got so controlled because he was the head of Operation Mockingbird. And you had some really interesting observations about how successful Operation Mockingbird was. Yes, I, I think, you know, to this day, I, I think what it proves to us is that the CIA and the national security apparatus are embedded in the media. I mean, they are largely controlling mainstream media. And so this is why you'll never see any uh, ma mainstream media outlets on television, for instance, really take on the Kennedy assassination and talk about the actual evidence. The same with 9-11. I mean, my God, when you have over 2,000 licensed structural engineers and registered architects all going on record that these buildings were brought down not by the planes that ran into them, but by controlled demolition. I, I mean, it just takes my breath away. Yeah, it's, it, it is uh, quite stunning. And you mentioned in your book that uh, Cord Meyer was heavily decorated for his extremely successful attempts to infiltrate, co-opt, and basically take over both the U.S. media through the CIA program called Operation Mockingbird and uh, a lot of the global media as well. Radio Free Europe was, you know, uh, another one of his little projects. He, he, Cord was a brilliant guy. I mean, he could have been successful at anything he took on. He was also a beautiful writer. Uh, I mean, this guy won the O. Henry Award for the best new short story uh, right when he came out of World War II. I mean, it's a it, it's an incredible story that was published in the Atlantic, and uh, his book Peace or Anarchy uh, did very well when it first came out in the late 1940s. Uh, his his second book Facing Reality I I thought was just a complete whitewash. Uh, <clears throat> And it didn't do well at all, but by that time, uh, there was really no one home in Cord Meyer. I mean, this beautiful young pacifist soul uh, had been co-opted by evil, and I think that's the only way to say it, and he was gone. Yeah, that's. Uh, it'd be really interesting to be a fly on the wall, you know, watching Cord in his first interactions with Alan Dulles, who recruited him for the CIA and apparently turned him away from this uh, path of seeking world peace. Um, and, uh, you know, I, uh, somebody should maybe try to make a movie out of it or, or write fiction about it. It's really because he's such a larger-than-life character. You know, your book is by far the, the best thing that's yet been done about this. Well, that, it's interesting that you say that because I, I shared that one chapter with Cord with a couple of CIA people who, who knew him. And both of them independently came back to me and said, 
it was by far the best thing they had ever read about Cord, that it really captured something about him that no one else had been able to capture. And that was, I considered that actually a real feather in my cap because it was a very hard chapter to write. It took me a long time, and I had to spend a, quite a bit of time in the Library of Congress reading his diaries and things, things like that. But it was, it was gratifying finally to get it done in the way that I did because I really felt in the end that I had portrayed Cord uh, in terms of you know, who largely he was and, and what he turned into. And you also uh, succeeded in a kind of a deep characterization of Mary Meyer and JFK and, and their uh, relationship, which apparently had a lot to do with turning JFK towards world peace during the last year of his life. Uh, and, and that's another uh, amazing and uh, quite impressive story. And, and that you know, JFK's trajectory kind of mirrored uh, Cord Meyer's. It was sort of a mirror image of it. Cord Meyer went from from a peace activist to a uh, hardline sort of cold warrior and uh, you know, willing to employ evil methods. And JFK was sort of following the opposite trajectory. He was a, a cold warrior and spoke out against Eisenhower being you know, too, too much of an appeaser. And then in, once in office, he had this turn towards peace, uh, apparently stimulated by a number of things, including the CIA deceiving him about the Bay of Pigs, uh, the 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis, in which all of his advisors uh, wanted him to attack Cuba, which we now know would have set off a nuclear exchange, uh, and and then this relationship with Mary Meyer. And so he comes across also as a uh, three-dimensional, larger-than-life, uh, in-depth human being in, in your account in a way that he doesn't in most other accounts. We see that kind of change in him, and we see these weird paradoxes of, you know, his cap capacity for idealism and purity of heart, as well as his sort of other <laughs> less <laughs> benign characteristics, uh, especially in the, you know, the earlier periods of his life. Yes, I, I think that's a very good point, and, and I think that's particularly important for your listeners to understand, that JFK did go through a transformation, which I think largely took place uh, during and after the Cuban Missile Crisis in, in October of 62. That was really, I think, a huge turning point for him. And it was at that time, Kevin, that you know his relationship with Mary Meyer was really uh, primary. I mean, he was seeing a lot of her, and I think she was having a real impact on him. I mean, this was a relationship with a woman that he had never had before. And I think she was the first woman to really stand up to him, you know, emotionally, and basically say, look, I'm not going to put up with any of your crap. I'm going to give it to you straight. And if you don't want to be with me, that's fine. Believe me, I'm not going to be devastated. Uh, but, you know, if you do want to be with me, you're going to have to show up in a way that you don't, you, you really don't know much about. And I think that really intrigued him because this became a relationship of redemption for JFK. I do maintain in the book that there is credible evidence 
that I do think they, they took a mild LSD or psilocybin trip uh, several weeks before he made his legendary uh, American University uh, commencement address in June of 63. Uh, I think the combination of things really had an impact on him where this was the moment where he was turning away from the Cold War toward world peace. And Mary was part of that process for him. And, and it's such a fascinating and kind of heroic story in a way. JFK having this character of, you know, he was always in pain from his physical ailments. So living with a tremendous degree of pain that he had to medicate for with a lot of drugs, including some bad ones like amphetamines. Uh, right. It's kind of amazing that this guy was even functional at all. But he, he kind of got through life repressing that pain and uh, turning on this amazing charisma that he had. And then he was kind of using women, seducing and throwing away women or you know, sort of almost like playthings for him for such a long time. He was in that marriage with Jackie that was his father had forced him into it. It was never much of a real marriage. And then this guy, you know, this, this amazing character uh, who's not entirely sympathetic by any means, uh, meets Mary Meyer. And it seems that the sparks that flew between those two sort of turned him into a real person. Well, I, I, you know, and those sparks began, I think, the moment they met back in February of 1936. I mean, he was really taken with her. She, she could have cared less. I mean, she saw him at that point for what he was, which was kind of a, you know... She was interested already at age 15 and 16. She was interested in someone who was more serious. And, you know, they knew each other in college. They didn't date as far as I know. But, I mean, Mary really falls for Cord Meyer because Cord comes back from the war and, you know, he's been wounded. And he said, this is terrible. We're doing the absolute wrong thing. You know, I should never have gone into this war. I, I gave up my most cherished beliefs in, in terms of nonviolence and pacifism, and, and I've got to turn this around. And so Mary and Cord were the sort of post-World War II glamour couple uh, and, and really made, you know, an impact to one degree or another. I mean, that was the kind of relationship that Mary wanted to have with a man. And JFK was not at that point. He, there wasn't, he, he wasn't evolved enough to have that kind of a relationship with a woman. He, he had tremendous hostility and mistrust toward women, largely because I think he had such a terrible relationship with his mother, which I, I try and point out. Uh, but that changed because I think Mary's influence was strong enough where JFK knew he had some real severe emotional problems. But as I said earlier, uh, there was the possibility of redemption with Mary, and that was really worth fighting for. And there's something about this story that seems to sort of mirror the larger trajectory of the U.S. Uh, in the post-World War II era. Uh, we had really the country faced a choice of how it was going to react to its World War II experience. It could have turned towards peace and towards leading the world towards peace sort of by being a role model and uh, trying to behave with a certain amount of, of ethical probity on the world stage. And that, I think, was the kind of uh, trajectory that Cord Meyer, the peace activist, 
uh, would have advocated, hence the same trajectory that JFK uh, was leading us toward during the last year of his life. But unfortunately, I think we made the wrong choice, which was to take the horrific slaughter and pain of World War II, which left so many scars on so many people, and, and rather than healing those scars and trying to emerge uh, healthy and ethical, the, our country became cynical and repressed the pain and then moved in this direction of kind of Machiavellian using whatever it takes to make sure that whatever suffering there is in the world, we're the ones inflicting it rather than the ones on the receiving end of it. Well, I, I mean, I, I, I largely agree with you. I, I mean, at the end of World War II, uh, we have the rise of the American empire and the invention of the national security state with the advent of the Central Intelligence Agency. And the, the CIA basically changed the historical and cultural landscape of the United States post-World War II. I, I, I mean, we don't, I still maintain we don't know the half of it in terms of some of the things that they did. It, 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 it's only beginning to come out in, in dribs and drabs in terms of what the CIA has been up to uh, since its inception, or particularly in the 1950s and 60s. And this is, you know, where the the Cold War historian uh, and former intelligence person, uh, Fletcher Prouty, uh, who was the character that uh, Oliver Stone based on uh, Mr. X in his film JFK, he has been really eloquent uh, with the two books that he wrote about what the impact of the CIA did uh, during that time, and I, I credit Prouty with being one of the first people who was willing to stick his neck out. He resigned his commission after Kennedy was assassinated because he knew uh, what had go gone on, and he could not stomach the role that he had taken beforehand, and he turned his life into becoming a real historian and wrote two great books one is called The Secret Teams, and the other, I think, is JFK in Vietnam or something like that. I don't have the title exactly correct, but if your listeners go to Amazon, it's right there. Um, but this was really, uh, I think, it's been huge. You know, you know what George, George Kennan said at the end of his life about the CIA, that you know, giving the CIA the kind of power that it had was the biggest mistake of his life. Uh, he told that to Congress. He told that to a Yale historian, John Lukacs. Uh, you know, I, I just think that we still have really not dealt with the full impact of the influence of our own national security apparatus. Indeed, and, and Truman actually published an op-ed in the Washington Post, I believe, uh, on the eve of, or right, I'm sorry, right after the JFK assassination, uh, and it was printed in the morning edition, and then it was killed and taken out of the subsequent edition of the Correct. same day's newspaper, uh, which amounted to Truman uh, saying, you know, all but coming out and saying the CIA just killed the president. I really wish I hadn't created this agency. Well, right. I wish I had not allowed it to have these paramilitary dimension where it can go off and do anything that it damn well pleases and, and then claim plausible deniability, uh, that kind of thing. But, you know, uh, I, I mean, Truman 
he could have done more to stand up to what had taken place. So could have Eisenhower. Uh, I mean, this is what Eisenhower says at the end of his administration to Dulles. You've left me a legacy of ashes. I mean, uh, that was a, a book title that someone won the Pulitzer Prize on about the history of the CIA. You know, I think it's there's so much, Kevin, that we still don't know about what took place. I mean, I mean the fact that you know Richard Helms destroyed all the MK Ultra files, uh, and I think that's really where we would have seen what the CIA was really up to. And let's, let's remind the listeners that MK Ultra was the secret CIA mind control program who that was defined in terms of. Uh, the success would be if they could create a mind-controlled assassin who would kill someone and not have the slightest idea why he did it or perhaps believe a false narrative about why he did it. And uh, that, of course, may have given us real-life uh, so-called assassins uh, like, uh, well, of course, the Sirhan Sirhan is the obvious one, the guy who tests out at 99.9% on the scale of, of how hypnotizable you are. Uh, right. but, but this this mind control work seems to have gone on. It, it wasn't just the stuff that's been revealed about MK Ultra, as you say. There was so much more, including uh, many many dozens minimum cases of CIA people torturing uh, people to death in mind exactly. control experiments. Yeah, uh, yeah. That's that's that. I was very shocked when I encountered that because I guess I still had the idea that even if these guys are professional assassins and so on. Um, that that was, that's just too much. Torturing dozens or even hundreds of people to death in mind control experiments, that sounds like Dr. Mengele. That's not something that our tax dollars are going to be paying for, but apparently well, they I, did. The, the whole concept of the Manchurian candidate, you know, I, I mean, this is yeah, clearly, I, I think it, it's, it's increasingly clear that Sirhan Sirhan was programmed to uh, you know, show up in the way that he did for RFK's assassination. I do think there's legal work going on now by the attorney William Pepper uh, that completely uh, blows this case out of the water in proving that Sirhan Sirhan did not kill RFK, but that someone else did. His shots came from the front. The shots that killed RFK came from behind him. Uh, there's just there's just such a wealth of conspiracy uh, that we really do not know about, and of course, conspiracy theorists uh, has gotten a very bad rap in, in our culture only because the CIA has infused into the media uh, that it should. I, I mean, it was during Jim Garrison's investigation of uh, Clay Shaw in 1967 that the CIA sent out a memo uh, asking all of its stations to really start to push this idea that anything that diverges from the Warren report should be labeled as a conspiracy theory and that people who talk about these things are conspiracy theorists. And this was all set up to malign and defame people who did that. Before that had taken place, they were just called alternative assassination theories. But the concept of conspiracy theory was generated by the CIA itself. Well, that's right. Uh, Lance DeHaven Smith's book, Conspiracy Theory in America, goes into this quite brilliantly. And uh, it's, it's pretty ironic because, you know, if you try to simply tell the truth about these things, 
you know, you look quite paranoid. If you speculate a little more about what it looks like the big picture is, uh, you sound even more paranoid. <laughs> and, right. and then when you find out what really was going on, it turns out that it was worse than your most paranoid nightmares could ever have come up with. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You know, and, and this is ironically, you know, most of history or a great deal of history is made or, or changed uh, by conspiracies that took place. It's the most commonly charged federal crime. Yes. Uh, and, and the term conspiracy theorist has become so mindless that it can be used in the case of 9-11, which obviously was a conspiracy. You know, the term conspiracy theorist was invented by the CIA to be applied against JFK researchers because this was a crime that had been attributed to a lone gunman, Oswald. So anybody who thought that there was more than one person involved, which is what a conspiracy is, was going to be maligned with this term. But today, uh, you're called a conspiracy theorist if you have an alternative theory of 9-11, and yet everyone admits that obviously more than one person was involved with the events of 9-11, therefore everyone is a conspiracy theorist. Uh, the term makes no sense whatsoever, and yet it's still being applied mindlessly and robotically, almost like the bleeding of sheep uh, in a case which it doesn't fit. Yes. I, I could not agree with you more. I, I, I really think that this has gone way farther than, than it should have. But, you know, fortunately, again, I think largely because of the Internet, people are waking up. And I see that as a very hopeful sign that there is a gradual awakening on the part of the citizens of our country to what our government is doing and has been doing. And I particularly... I'm encouraged, you know, as we come into the 50th anniversary in, in, in another couple of weeks on the 22nd of November, I think there really is a larger population of our country that is awakening to the fact that what our government tried to do was essentially lie to the American citizens and cover this up completely. And, and this critical mass of people that's slowly gathering uh, understanding some of these hidden truths about our history, which are really shocking in many cases, uh, seems to me to be contributing to a crisis that the national security state is facing and will be facing in the future as uh, people are awakening to these things thanks to the Internet and, and other things. It seems that this is happening at exactly the moment that the U.S. petrodollar empire is being threatened by a lot of other forces as well, including the rise of China, which will have a much larger economy than that of the U.S. in just a few years, uh, the, you know, and the general rise of these other countries, the BRIC countries. The U.S. is no longer going to be able to dominate the world economically the way it has, and indeed the West will not be dominating the world economically either. Uh, and, and so it seems that this empire is seeing its power slipping away both on the domestic front with the spread of the truth and on the international front with a change in global relative economic power. And I'm concerned about how they're going to react to this by, you know, their past record uh, would indicate that they're capable of the most immense crimes. Uh, many folks are worried about Halliburton detention camps and things like that uh, or preemptive wars designed precisely to rally the public and make them forget about what's really going on. Um, and then on the other hand, you know, maybe they'll go gently into the good night and may make up for their past crimes by allowing the empire to sort of slowly uh, make way for a multipolar world. I mean, do you, how, how do you think that they'll react? 
Well, that, I think that's a quintessential question because the credibility of government, of our government right now, is really headed into the toilet. Now, in my opinion, what is really going to, in a sense, upset this in, a, in the most dramatic way possible will be, uh, I believe, in the next five to ten years, maybe even sooner, uh, the revelation uh, that we are being visited by extraterrestrials. I, I think the evidence is overwhelming. I've studied it for years. I've talked to people in the know about this. I mean, this is happening. And yet our government has done everything that it could to cover this up. And when this finally breaks, and it will, uh, it will, of course, be biblical. Uh, but, you know, the fact of the matter is what will come out is the amount of just complete, sheer uh, criminality uh, that took place in terms of our government obfuscating the truth about this for, uh, you know, certainly back until the mid-1940s. And, you know, if we look at history, I think this has been going on for, you know, possibly a couple of thousand of years. I mean, we won't know until we know but I am utterly convinced that this is going to be the next big event on our planet. Very interesting. Well, I I think you may be right. I've looked at this, too. I have a Ph.D. minor in folklore, and I uh, did work on Moroccan stories of amazing and supernatural events, miracle stories of various kinds. So I read up on the UFO lore. You know, UFO stories in, in many parts of the world have these parallels to traditional stories of kidnappings by so-called jinn, genies, things like that. And, yeah, there's something going on. There's so much smoke around the UFO issue that there's obviously some kind of fire. But I've never been able to figure out exactly what in the world that fire is. I can't get a coherent narrative uh, out of all of the information in that field. I can with JFK, with 9-11, etc. It's pretty simple to... Well, not that simple, but, you know, with a little work, you can come up with a coherent narrative that probably roughly covers the material, just like your book does with the JFK and Mary Meyer issue. But with the UFO issue, oh, my goodness, you have so many different approaches. You know, there's, and none of them are really very satisfying in terms of a comprehensive explanation or a narrative that can help us really make sense of this issue. So if you have any suggestions about where I should be looking to uh, get a better sense of what in the world is going on with this UFO issue, please let me know. Well, I think that one of the best books written uh, I've seen is by this guy Richard Dolan, who was actually mm -hmm. a Rhodes Scholar finalist, went to Oxford, uh, studied history. I mean, he's, he's a very knowledgeable guy. He, he wrote UFOs in the National Security State. He's just come out with a, a new book called A.D. After Disclosure, what the government, when, when the government finally reveals the truth about alien contact. I, I mean, I really respect uh, Richard quite a bit because he brings a real scholarly approach to the subject matter, and he's done his research. He knows what he's talking about. Uh, <clears throat> so I, I think he's certainly one person. There's another man, journalist, uh, Timothy Good, who I, who's some of his work I've read and I liked a lot. His new book is called Earth, an Alien Enterprise. Um, 
you, you know, there there is uh, Philip Corso also wrote a good book about this subject matter. There, there is some good work out there. Uh, there's also a lot of junk. Um, but you know, I mean, you, you see that within the Kennedy assassination as well. You just have to look for it, and I do believe it's there. And as I said, I, I, I think this is going to have uh, a biblical proportional effect uh, on on the entire planet when it breaks. And it is going to break sooner than later. Well, Richard Dolan, as I recall, uh, finds credible the story that Eisenhower, uh, <laughs> you know, the simple version of the story, which is a brilliant story. I mean, it's a perfect metaphor, whether or not it's true. But the story goes that Eisenhower was approached by representatives of these spiritual aliens who are supposedly tall, Nordic-looking characters. Uh, and what did they offer him? Well, he's, if, if, they, if we enter into relationship with these spiritual aliens, we can pursue spiritual development more effectively. And then along come these little gray aliens, and they come up to Eisenhower and say, if you uh, cut a deal with us, we can get you all kinds of really great technology to help you dominate Earth. And guess what? Eisenhower cut a deal with the bad aliens, and uh, the rest is history. Well, I don't know if this is true or not. It's certainly, as I said, a very good metaphor that explains a lot. <laughs> but Dolan uh, seems to take that seriously. Uh, do, you, do you think that that story might actually be true? I, I actually, you know, I interviewed one of Eisenhower's attaches, uh, a man by the name of Brigadier Steve Lovkin, and we talked about this at length, and he's convinced of it uh, because he knew Eisenhower and what he was up to. Um, I've also, you know, talked to a couple of other people that clearly Eisenhower was very into this subject matter. I mean, I mean, it was a phenomenon that was near and dear to him. Uh, as to the actual uh, events that actually took place, I, 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 I can't say. I, I mean, I wasn't there. But I do think uh, that uh, Eisenhower was approached. Uh, in Timothy Good's new book, uh, he says there's an account where JFK was a, approached. Um, you know, it's not like I can agree with this wholeheartedly because, you know, it, it presents all kinds of research problems uh, in terms of verifying a stories like this. But, but the point is, is I, I really don't think it's out of the extraordinary to think that way. Uh, and I am just utterly convinced through a number of different things that I have seen and read and people I've talked to, that the ph phenomenon is, by and large, very, very real. Uh, I, I mean, that we are being visited. Um, there, there's great concern about this planet, about what's going on in this planet, in terms of, you know, the ecological damage that we are doing to it, the, the nuclear uh, fallout that, that uh, evolves from this planet, both from the nuclear industry, but when they were doing all the atmospheric te uh, testing back in the late 40s and 50s. So, you know, uh, I, I just think that it, it, it's something that very few people, of course, no one in the mainstream media wants to talk about it yet, but they will be. Uh, that's my prediction. They will be, and it will be sooner than later. Okay. Well, despite my having a skeptical bent in general, uh, I think you're probably right about that. And sorry if I have any listeners that I've offended with that opinion. Uh, just 
go on and read some of these books that we've just recommended. Well, thank you so much, Peter Jenny. It's been a fascinating conversation. Uh, your book, Mary's Mosaic, The CIA Conspiracy to Murder John F. Kennedy, Mary Pinchot Meyer and Their Vision for World Peace, is a minor masterpiece, maybe even more than minor. Keep up the terrific work, and I, I hope to have you back sometime because there's always more than enough to talk about. Thank you, Kevin. It was great to be with you. Okay, appreciate it. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's Peter Janney, author of Mary's Mosaic. I'm Kevin Barrett. The website is truthjihad.com. See you next time.